All right. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Uh, what a week, man. We've had a, uh, an amazing week. We took uh, about 20 students to the beach this week and had a, an absolute blast. But this old man's not built for 1 a.m. Uh, anymore. And actually, the truth is, um, after our first night at the beach, I called my wife the next morning. I was like, hey, babe, how'd you sleep? And she was like, ah, it was a rough night with the babies. And I was like, I've just had the best sleep I've had in four months. <laughs> yeah. She hung up on me after that, but no, I'm teasing. We did have a blast. I got to room with some like seventh and eighth grade boys, and that was, uh, that was fun. Um, it was a real, real fun. But um, parents, you, you have some great kids, and uh, this week we've seen them have some really meaningful experiences with our great God. And uh, I just want to say I'm super thankful for Tucker. Is he in here? I think he's feeling a little sick this morning. But uh, super thankful for Tucker and his leadership. And this week uh, we had his wife with us, Liz, helping lead our ladies, and that was a, a real blessing. We had some great leaders, adult leaders, on this camp as well, and uh, I'm super thankful for all their help. Um, this trip did have a, a couple unique challenges. You parents have probably heard some of those things. If you have any questions, let me know. But um, by God's grace, we weathered each of those storms. And I just want to say a couple of things because it, it's going to connect to our message. While we stress in storms, Jesus rests through our storms, right? Um, I was actually talking with Jeff this morning through uh, some, some truth about how it's in the struggle, it's in the hardship that we really experience the greatest growth. Did you know that? I was telling him a couple years ago, I, I tried my hand at gardening and I'm not a good gardener. Uh, I was going to try it again this year, but I'm too busy growing humans to grow anything else. Um, so, uh, but a couple of years ago, I tried to garden and we planted some tomatoes and a few things. And uh, I was out, I mean, I'm, I'm like just soaking them like every day, drowning these jokers with water. My neighbor comes over, he's an older man, very uh, helpful. And he just came over, he was like, hey man, you're doing that all wrong. <laughs> and uh, I was like, okay, well, what should I do? And he said, uh, he said, well, you, you, too much water. I said, but they need water. He said, no, 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 water's good. But it's during the drought that the roots go deep. And as he's talking, man, there's a sermon rolling in my mind. Because the spiritual implications of what he's talking about in the physical world. He, he's saying, you know, as, yeah, they need water, but they need time without it so that the roots go deep. That's where they get the strongest and best nourishment. The roots push deep. That's what, it grows downward when there's no water. And I was like, oh my goodness, Lord. And so the truth of what the Lord does in our lives through the struggles. And that's where our message leads us today. This whole week at, at Beach Camp, our theme verse was John 16, where Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, in this world, you will have trouble. Anybody say amen to that? Amen. In this world, you will have trouble. Then he said this, but take heart for I have overcome the world. Take heart. That was the theme this week at camp, and uh, it actually surfaces in our text in the book of Acts today. We're in our last few, few messages through the book of Acts, and what we've seen in these last couple of weeks is that our God is sovereign. 
and that our God is saving. Last week in particular, we saw how God uses our personal story, our story of how we've been redeemed out of sin. He uses that for his glory. So the story of your sin is the stage for his grace. Well, today is Father's Day, and so um, our scripture passage will give some encouraging challenges to men. And um, I want us to see today the goodness of God and the grit of a leader. All right, this is where where our text is going to lead us today. But uh, why don't you go ahead and stand with me? I know you just got comfortable. We have a a lengthy text today. I'm going to read fast. We'll start in Acts 27, Acts chapter 27, verse 1, and we're going to read all the way to chapter 28, verse 16. And what we're reading is the story of Paul's journey to Rome, and it is a rocky journey. It's filled with storms, shipwreck, snake bites, and sickness. And what we learn here is that our God is not just the God of the destination. He's the God of the journey. Let's read together. When it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adamitrium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, And Julius treated Paul kindly, gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra and Lycia. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Cnidus, and as the winds did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee, the lee of Crete off Salomone. Coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, now uh, near which, which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast, that's the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, that even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our own lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said, and because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in the, in the majority, decided to put out to sea from there. On the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northeast, northwest, and spend the winter there. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the nor'easter struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat 
After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear. And thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. So they're throwing the stuff overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, our all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Do you feel the desperation? Like they're, they're at their wit's end. They're fully confident this is the end. We're about to die. Since they've been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and he said, Men, you should have listened to me. <laughs> right. You should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet, now I urge you to, listen, take heart. For there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said to me, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So Paul says to them, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Now, when the 14th night had come, so two weeks pass, right? As we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took another sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed. They prayed. These men don't know the Lord, but they're praying for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes from the ship's lifeboat and let it go. Probably not what he wanted them to do, but they did it anyway. Verse 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you've continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you, take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were, Lucas writing, and he was there. We were in all 276 persons on the ship. It's a big boat. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship by throwing out the wheat into the sea. (laughs) That's wild. Now, when it was day... They did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea. At the same time, loosening the ropes that tied the rudders, then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable. And the stern was being broken up by the surf. The soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners. 
lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. And he ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and rest on the planks or on the pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Isn't that amazing? All right, just a few more verses. Let's read on. And we were brought safely through. We then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened onto his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Paul, however, shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. (laughs) Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when we were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed And we just see in the next verse that after three months there, they set sail and off to Rome. We'll pause there. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, this is your word. And we want to see you on the pages as the God who is with us in the struggles of life, in the difficulties that what you have promised You are faithful to see it through. And that you're not just a God of destinations, but you are the God over our journeys. Help us to see this truth today in Jesus' glorious name. Amen. Okay, so it's a a large chunk of Scripture. And um, so it's a bit like eating an elephant. Um, how many of you know how to eat an elephant? Yeah, you guys, man. Y'all should be preaching this sermon. So we're going to take one bite at a time, right? And each bite we take, we're going to chew on it a little bit. So that's kind of how I want you to think of it. Um, here's, here's what I want us to know. Hold on to this overarching umbrella truth. Our God doesn't just care about getting you to eternity. He doesn't care only about your eternal life. He cares about your everyday life. And he's intricately involved in all of it. He's the God of the journey. So one bite at a time, here's what I want us to see from the text. I want us to see the goodness of the Lord. The goodness of the Lord. 
We notice one of the first things we see is that Paul, uh, as he's being sent to Rome to be on trial before Caesar, um, he is entrusted to a centurion. That's a Roman soldier who's a, a leader over a hundred uh, soldiers. He's entrusted to a centurion named Julius for the journey to Rome. Now, God is so good to Paul that this Julius is kind to him that when they stop in Sidon, he's like, hey, man, I know you have some friends here. Why don't you go let them minister to you and you, you, you be with them? That's super kind. But I also just observe the perspective, how how Luke writes about this terrible hardship. It's written through a perspective of a contagious kind of joy. Do you notice that? Like, let's not forget, Paul has been in prison. He's been left in jail for two years. He's been dragged before uh, a governor. He's been dragged before a king. He's been humiliated. He's preached and been rejected. And now he's being sent to Caesar because they don't know what to do with him. And Paul says, you know, this centurion is rather nice to us. There's a perspective of joy in the midst of difficulty. And that is, should be, the perspective of Christians. Paul's going to write to the church in Philippi in chapter 4, and he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. This should be the perspective of God's people. We see difficulty, we see the journey through the lens of God's goodness and His sovereign control. But this voyage gets very dangerous, right? And Luke doesn't shy away from giving the dangerous details. Um, Paul speaks up. He gives some advice about waiting out the storms. I imagine Paul saying, hey, guys, I've actually already been shipwrecked a couple of times. Uh, if you want to read about that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. But I imagine he stands up. And he's like, hey, hey, man, I've done a lot of traveling recently. And I've actually been on a couple of boats that went down and... What we're about to do is exactly what we did that last time. We may want to wait this one out. In the Bible where it says it was already after the fast, um, the, the Day of Atonement was sort of a, a marker in the calendar for mariners, for, for seamen to know like, okay, it's not wise to travel from this date until this date. It's almost like our um, uh, hurricane season. You know, you have certain days that it probably wouldn't be wise to do some deep sea fishing. That's what Paul's saying here. Guys, we're already beyond the date of safety and the the storms are like really angry. It's probably not a good idea. I think we're going to lose our cargo and probably our lives. So he warns them. He gives them advice. But at this point in the journey, they don't trust him, right? They don't trust him. Um, the, The captain of the ship thinks to the owner of the boat and the owner of the boat's like, hey, we got this, man. And the sailors are like, yeah, I think we can weather the storm. It'll be all right. We need to go from here to the next port and we'll, we'll, we'll ride out the winter there. Well, that was a mistake. Because the next words in our text are words like this. Tempestuous wind. It struck down. We gave way. We were driven along. We were violently storm tossed. I was looking at some of the words in the Greek and one of them in particular is, uh, is the, where we get our word for typhoon, right? So this is not just a, 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 a big storm. This is like a deadly storm. So what do they do? Well, they begin to throw the cargo over. They begin to lighten the load. And then we check out the desperation that hits in verse 20. 
Look back at your Bibles. I just want you to see this again. It says, when neither sun nor stars had appeared. Now, why is that important on the ocean? Because that's your, that's your way to get where you're going, right? There's the sun. Okay, okay, so we're actually traveling east right now. Or there's that star. You know, the sailors knew the constellations, so that, that's how they mapped where they're going. But here's what he says. Neither sun nor stars. We haven't seen them in days. Essentially, he's saying, we don't know where we are. In the desperation, no small tempest lay on us. All hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. I was listening to that um, and I was thinking through some of my childhood. And I think I shared this story with some of our teenagers this week. But uh, when I was a teenager, I loved to go camping with my buddies and one of, uh, one of the men from our church was telling us about how you can go camping up in the National Forest up at a little place called Pine Glen. Anybody know where Pine Glen is? Cool. Okay. And from Pine Glen, he was explaining you can hike up through the woods to a lake called Sweetwater Lake. Anybody know where that is? Some great fishing up there. It's beautiful. One of the most serene places within an hour of, of our location. And so he was saying you can hike all the way up to Sweetwater Lake and you can fish there. You just hang out there. But... Shane was the guy's name. He was saying, but what we used to love to do is we'd get in a, a raft float and we'd float the creek back down to Pine Glen. Me and my guys were like, oh, that's amazing. Yes. So we planned a little camping trip. We went camping. Uh, we woke up that morning, you know, threw something together for breakfast, packed a granola bar, grabbed our floats, and went off to hiking barefoot. Because we all thought, I don't want to carry my shoes down the creek. So we hiked barefooted four miles up to Sweetwater. This is um, teenage, right? Teenage thoughts. Um, so we got all the way up to the lake. And guys, it is so beautiful. We got up there and the guy, we were just like, oh, this is beautiful. We just loved it. We jumped in. We swam for about 20 minutes. We got out, ate our granola bars, kind of. Got our energy back up. We're like, all right, let's, just, let's get in the creek. Let's float it back. So we had left out um, probably eight in the morning, maybe. Got up to four-mile hike up to Sweetwater. I'm going to guess probably about ten. Uh, and then we got in the creek to float back down. What we didn't realize and wasn't explained to us is the creek splits a few times. <laughs> and apparently every time it split, we took the wrong split. Apparently, I remember being attacked by horse flies, picking up my float, running barefooted through the woods, get away from the horse flies, seeing many snakes along the way, um, fearing for our lives. And let me tell you this, 10 hours later, we got back to our campsite. There was a point in the journey where my friend J.D., we had dragged ourselves out of the creek onto the beach there. And he just looked at me and he was like, I don't think we're going to make it. <laughs> and we had this sense of desperation that I'm sure is like maybe 5% of what these men felt in this moment. They're in the middle of a typhoon. They haven't seen the sun, the stars. They... They are afraid for their lives. And at this point in verse 20, they literally look at each other and they say, all hope of our being saved is abandoned. 
We are not going to make it. In comes the man of God with the promise of God. You know, it's often in moments of great despair that we hear the Lord speak clearest. And listen to me, it's not that he hasn't been speaking. It's that we have not been listening. But in the moments of the valley, something is removed and we get in a place of deep need and we cry out to God and he speaks in beautiful ways. And it's in the depths of those moments that we learn the goodness of our God. And here we learn that God is a God of promise. He's a God of promise. The Lord promises no loss of life, only the ship and the cargo and all the stuff. Difficulty still coming. Make no mistake, it's still going to be a hard journey, but your life will be saved. And Paul stands up to give this message. He's very bold here. You remember the first time he spoke and gave advice, they didn't listen to him. But this time he stands up in the middle of deep, dark storms, and he's the guy who's confident. Why does he have a bold confidence? Because Jesus had already promised him, Paul, you're going to Rome. And he knows when Jesus gives the promise, no matter what storms along the way, he knows where he's going. And so Paul stands up. He's received another vision. An angel comes to him and and, and says to him, you're still going to go stand before Caesar and God is going to give you the life of every man with you. So Paul's bold is confidence, though. Look at verse 25. Paul's confidence is in God's promise. Look at what he says. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. His confidence is not rooted in his skills as a sailor or his experience through shipwreck. No, his confidence is rooted in what God has said. We must listen and receive the word of God. We must cling to the word of God. He is a promise keeping God. Amen. So we see God of promise. Then we see the God of provision. These men have been too panicked to even have an appetite. Now, I promise you, if I'd had more than one granola bar, I'd have been all over that. But these guys can't even bring themselves to eat. Maybe it's they're too seasick or maybe it's just that they think, what's the point of eating? I'm not going to live another hour anyway. The desperation is so deep that they don't even have the faith to feed their body. After two weeks of stormy struggle, Paul urges them to take food. And he does something we've seen Jesus do, right? He took bread, he lifted it up, he gave thanks to God for God's great provision. And he broke it and said, Men, let's eat. God has provided. Let's eat. This may seem simple, but Paul's confidence is in the promise of God that not a hair of their heads will perish. And so he encourages them to eat. The Bible says that they were encouraged. Now, we use that word a lot, but we somehow we 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 don't separate it in courage. It just means to give courage. And so Paul's words to them lift their spirits. They've been in desperation, but because of Paul lifting the bread and saying, our God is a God, my God is a God who provides. And you can trust in him. 
And he gave thanks, gratitude. Gratitude has a way of steadying the ship through difficult days. A heart that is thankful, truly thankful, cannot at the same time be filled with fear. Your heart will have to choose one or the other. Am I going to praise or am I going to panic? And in this moment, Paul leads these men to praise and out of desperation and panic. Uh, By the way, ladies, it's uh, Father's Day. And uh, here's another little truth from Scripture. A hungry man is a worthless man. So feed that brother. (laughs) Right? Um, So we see the goodness of the Lord. That God is a God of promise, that he's got a provision and that he is a God of power. This is kind of the overarching theme of this whole section of scripture. We see God's power over the storms, don't we? Let me ask you, who controls the wind and the waves? Yes, we've seen that, right? We've seen it. We know this, but do you believe it? When you're being storm tossed. Do you sometimes lose sight of who's in control of the storm? There are many psalms we could read, but let me just be simple here. How about the story of Jonah? Jonah disobeyed God. He got on a boat running from God. A great storm came. The men are throwing stuff overboard, right? Similarities, you see them? Jonah finally says, it's my fault. Throw me over. And the guys are like, we don't want to do that. We don't want to be responsible for your life. And then another big wave crashes. And they're like, you grab his arm. (laughs) They throw him over. Soon as that brother hits the water. The storm goes calm. Why is that? The storm goes calm because who is in control? God's in control. God not only in control of the storm, but huge fish. God controls huge fish. What about the story in Matthew chapter 8 or Matthew 14 where in Matthew 8 where Jesus is asleep in the boat and his disciples are in the middle of a big storm and they're panicking. They even ask him, Lord, don't you care that we're perishing? You ever find yourself in that place where you begin to doubt the goodness, the good character of God in the midst of a storm? Jesus says, uh, Peace, be still. Quiets the storm. He reminds us again, I'm in control of these storms. God shows his power over storms. God shows his power over shipwrecks. He also confronts the effects or controls the effects of storms. Notice the cargo is thrown over. The life raft is cut away. The anchors have been cut away. The ship is going to be beat To a pulp, utterly destroyed. And not one hair of a head is going to be lost. How do we know this? Because who's in control? Our God is in control. He has power over storms, power over shipwrecks. We skip ahead in the storyline. We see where Paul is bitten by a venomous viper. Everybody there thinks this brother's about to swell up, vomit, and die. Right? But God has power over snake bites. God determines the days of a man, his life and his death. 
And no snake is going to usurp God's authority. We learned that all the way back in Genesis with the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve. And in Genesis 3.15, we get the very first glimpse of the gospel when God says to the woman, your offspring is going to rescue everybody. And he says, the serpent will bruise his heel, but he will crush his head. And we learn that our God is over the serpent. And then we also see that God has power over sickness. As Paul gets into this village of Malta, the chief's father was sick, deathly ill. He had uh, some kind of sickness called dysentery. I think that's what always killed me on the Oregon Trail as a kid. I died of dysentery. Anybody? It was either that or trying to ford the river. We never made it. I lost all my children along the way. This guy, um, he's about to die. He's got dysentery. He's very sick. But we learn that our God has power over sickness. Paul knows that God can show his goodness and his power in a demonstration of compassionate power. And great revival breaks out. The people see a miracle and they come running. All of them that are sick are like, heal me, heal me. And God is so compassionate and so good and so powerful. After three months there, God started a church in Malta. Who knew that was the plan? God did. So we see the goodness of the Lord. And let's get to the last bit. The last bite. And we'll chew on this just for a moment. Men, because it's Father's Day, I want to speak to you specifically. So if you're not writing things down, I want to encourage you just to write these things down, please. We remember the things we write. So we see the grit of a leader. Through these struggles, Paul rises, you know. He comes to the surface. He's on a boat with a lot of people who do not believe in Jesus. They're not Christians. 270 plus people. He's got a few guys with him. Luke, Aristarchus. But apart from that, it's just him, a bunch of prisoners, some sailors, and a lot of soldiers. This is not a church service. This is Paul in the world. And at first he has zero influence. Zero. He stood up and said, God, I've been shipwrecked. And they were like, sit down. We're going to do what he says. So men, I want to give you some, some pointers here that we learned from Paul. The grit of a leader. First, speak up. Speak up. In verse 9, chapter 27, Paul has a wealth of experience and he gives some solid advice. Years ago, I was in a discipleship group with um, men of every generation, 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s. And it was beautiful because every week we come, we gather uh, at the table, have a biscuit, coffee together And every week we'd talk and just share about the Lord and learn from one another. And I remember telling those guys about a struggle I was having with my little kids, you know. I was pitching a fit about something. I'm not able to control this and it's just ticking me off, you know. I was telling them, I'm angry. And this brother in his 50s, with wealth of experience and the compassion of a father, said, Justin, can I give you some advice? I said, yes, sir. 
And he said, chill out. It's funny, but the Spirit of God used that. Because he, he elaborated. He said, man, if I could go back to when I was raising my munchkins, that's what I would tell myself. Chill out. Don't ruin these moments with being that kind of dad. Chill out. And the advice of that brother, I attribute and many others to being a much better father than I would have been without it. Men, speak up. Speak up. We see from Paul also that he stand up. In verses 21 through 26, he stood up in the middle of deep desperation with a word from God. So when I'm saying stand up, here's what I mean. Stand up and stand firm on the word of God. It was the same message Jesus had spoken to him in jail in chapter 23, verse 11. You're going to go to Rome. But this time there was some added truth for the current situation. And these guys are going with you. They're going to make it. So Paul stands up in the middle of them. He's like, take heart, men. Let me tell you what God has told me. And he speaks the truth of the word of God. He stood up. He stood firm on the word of God. That's how followers of Christ lead. We stand on the solid rock of the word of God. Stand up and speak it. Third, point up. Point up. Two weeks into a really dark place in this journey, Paul points them upward. He takes this little piece of bread and he's like, men, we're weak because we haven't eaten. We've got to eat. We need our strength to weather the storm. God has told us that he's going to get us through this. Let's give him thanks. Let's, he points their attention and affection upward, pulls them out of a pit. Gratitude. It's a pointing upward. Gratitude has a way of lifting the heart out of the gutter. It really is true that worship is our weapon. And thankful praise is the ammunition. The psalmist that we read, Psalm 121, says, I lift my, heel, my, my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? Not the hills. My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Gratitude guards the heart from fear and anxiety. So leader in the room. Point people upward. This is so much like how Jesus did it when he fed the 5000 that day. He took that little boy's number three value meal from Captain D's, right? Little fish and chips. Raise it to the Lord. Said, oh God, you're a God who provides. And we are thankful for your provision. His disciples were like, doesn't he know that's just a sack lunch? And Jesus is thankful. Oh, thank you, Lord. We bless your name. Broke the bread. Fed the people. Point upward. A great leader. Listen, listen, you need to hear this. A great leader is a hope dealer. A hope dealer. So what leaders deal in is hope. So point upward. Third, or next, whatever number. Go low. Go low. Leaders go low. When they finally get to shore, the natives are building a fire. Where's Paul? What's he doing? 
picking up sticks. Couldn't that have been somebody else's job? Nope. If you're too big to do small things, you're probably too small to do big things. I'm reminded about how Jesus disrupted an argument among his disciples. They were arguing about which one of them was greater. Jesus just stands up, goes and gets a towel, begins washing feet. What a lesson. Great leaders go low. Leaders shake off. We see uh, where Paul literally shakes off a snake into the fire. And I was just reminded of my Little League baseball days, you know, uh, up, up to bat and get hit by like a 30 mile an hour pitch. Oh, you know. Oh, oh, and the coach comes over. Hey, hey, shake it off, shake it off, shake it off. You know what I'm talking about? Shake it off. You're all right, shake it off. Shake it off. Paul literally is bitten by a deadly snake. Everybody's expecting the worst. Some of them begin to judge him. Do you notice that? This guy, he must be a killer. He's a, he's a murderer. If the sea couldn't kill him, God's not going to let him live. He bit him by a snake. Look at there. Went for a stick. It was a snake. Oh, gone. He must be a murderer. Justice is coming after him. All the people, you know, they're all kicking him while he's down. Shake it off. Well, then Paul shakes it off. God preserves his life. Nothing happened to him. And after a little while, all those same people saying he must be a murderer are like, he must be a God. The fickle nature of the crowds is dangerous for any leader. And if you live for the approval of men, you'll die from their rejection. They'll go from judging you to praising you in a matter of minutes. And you can't get crushed by their criticism and you can't get bloated by their praise. You must stay the course that it's God. It's all God. Amen? So we shake it off. And lastly, I want us to see this. The chief named Publius, Publius, however you say his name, he has welcomed Paul and the others into his home. Great sense of hospitality. He's a person of peace. We learn from Jesus what that means. He's He's a bridge builder. But there's a problem. There's a problem. His father is deathly ill. What do leaders do when they come across problems? Press in. Press in. Leaders don't run from problems. They follow the Holy Spirit and press in. This is a bold move of faith. Paul's just been bitten by a snake, shook it off, comes over, meets this guy, finds out his father's sick, says, let me lay hands on him. My snake bitten hands, let me lay them on this brother. Because my God heals. This is a bold move of faith. Think about it for a minute. This kind of faith says if God doesn't do this, it's going to be humiliating. You ever live that way? You ever willing to go, all right, God, if you don't put something beneath my feet, this is going to be bad. The great leaders press in. With problems, with faith. By the time they got ready to leave, these people had honored them 
were incredibly gracious to them, loaded their boat down with all the things they would need. Who knew? God had a plan on the journey to Rome to start a church in a little island of Malta. Who knew? God knew. Paul couldn't have known. But when he saw the need, he pressed in. And God did the rest. Church, two things. God is good through our suffering, through our storms, through shipwrecks, through snake bites, through sickness. God is good. Amen? But it's in those days, in that suffering, in that difficulty, that the grit of a leader is developed. Embrace difficulty. Trust God through it. Let Him raise you up. I pray today that we look to Jesus as our sure and steady anchor and that we trust Him, that He's with us through every storm. Amen.